0: You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.
1: Morning snack time was 1030 on the dot, a regimen established and maintained by Marianne who believed that rigid adherence to a timetable was the key to effective parenting. She had placed glow-in-the-dark digital clocks in her children's rooms and had instructed them not to leave their beds in the morning until the first number had changed to seven. She also bragged of strictly enforcing a 7 p.m. bedtime with no resistance from the kids, a claim that filled Sarah with both envy and suspicion. She had never identified with authority figures and couldn't help sensing a sort of whip-cracking fascist glee behind Marianne's ability to make the trains run on time. Still, as skeptical as she was of fanatical punctuality in general, Sarah had to admit that the kids seemed to find it reassuring. None of them complained about waiting or being hungry, and they never asked what time it was. They just went about the business of their morning play, confident that they'd be notified when the proper moment arrived. Lucy seemed especially grateful for this small gift of predictability in her life. Sarah could see the pleasure in her eyes when she came running over to the picnic table with the others, part of the pack for the first time all day. "'Mommy, mommy!' she cried. "'Snack time!' Of course, no system is foolproof, Sarah thought, rummaging through the diaper bag for the rice cakes she could have sworn she'd packed before they left the house. "'But maybe that was yesterday?' It wasn't that easy to tell one weekday from the next anymore. They all just melted together
0: like a bag of crayons left out in the sun. Tom Parada is the author of Joe College, Election, and his newest novel, Little Children, is a dark, often comedic look at the lives of suburban men and women. Welcome to the show, Tom. Thanks, Rick. Tom, your novel really seems to be about, in a sense, America the petty. (laughs) Uh, Well, I think most of us
1: you know, live small-scale lives, and, and we have to find our big dramas in in the course of those small-scale lives. I mean, w- one of the things that I thought that that made me want to write this book was the idea that you could tell, like, a grand love story in the most unromantic and banal of spots, which is, you know, the toddler playground, where parents are, you know, not looking their best, mostly not feeling their best, dealing with, you know, these uh, emotional storms that, that they have to you know, these tantrums from their kids. So I really was attempting to kind of find a
0: big emotional drama in the pettiest place you could think of. Your work is very funny, and you use a lot of interesting prose. It's super clear. Could you tell us about how you create this utterly transparent prose? It's as if you shined it up with Windex. Um, you know... I mean, I,
1: when it's your style, I think you it's what you write without thinking, in some sense. Um, I was always drawn to the writers that I, I thought were, you know, in this American plain language tradition. And you know, everybody can draw the map from Hemingway. Uh, I put Bernard Malamud in there. Um, he's a very crystalline writer. Um, you know, Raymond Carver. Tobias wolf Richard Ford, the 80, 80s minimalists, you know, that's the tradition I place myself in, but I'd also hearken back to writers like Dashiell Hammett you know, if you go back to his stuff, you'll see um, that same quality, and I think uh, you know, it's always just what I've been drawn to and, in fact, I think Little Children is a little more flexible and internal, my my earlier work is is, I think more clearly in a kind of minimalist tradition. I, I tried to use that same clarity of language, but to to
0: do a lot with the inner lives of these characters in this book. There's a lot of fantastic dialogue that carries this story along quite quickly. Do you sit around
1: playgrounds and
0: listen? Uh,
1: yeah, I sit around everywhere and listen. I think that's uh, almost second nature now. But I also think you know, a lot of this book is about the shock of becoming a parent, of of immersing yourself in this culture that in in many ways is like the antithesis of the culture that a lot of us were living in before we became parents. So I was like teaching in college and thought of myself as a very um, well-read, interesting person. Um, You know, I was up on music. I was up on books. I was, you know, in the world. And then suddenly you're on the playground and you're dealing with this, you know, There's not a whole lot of conversation between the adults. You know, nobody's really up on anything. Everybody's tired, everybody's cranky, and you just feel like, how did I get here? And and one of the things I kept sort of telling myself is exactly what my main character, Sarah, tells herself in the first paragraph of this book. She says, I am a researcher studying the behavior of boring suburban women. I am not a boring suburban woman myself and there's some desperate plea, you know, in that because of course I was there and that was my life and I was having to adjust to the fact that it was my life. Um but I did put in those hours and and you know if you're a writer and you put hours in a place it becomes fascinating because this is where people's lives unfold.
0: The lives that you describe are not Uninteresting or banal at all, and part of this is the way that you describe them. Could you talk about taking characters who are stuck in situations that are from the outside uninteresting and turning them into compelling, suspenseful characters?
1: You know, that's more an article of faith um, than anything else. Uh, uh, You know, my my first book, Bad Haircut, uh, follows a kid in the nineteen he's seventies eight years old when the story starts and he's eighteen when it ends and purposely i basically he's mostly an observer he's mostly watching things happen to his friends and and kind of orienting himself morally toward toward what goes on so the drama really is less what he does than what he thinks about what he sees it's a kind of a uh... snapshot of his like moral development Um, so that's one thing. I think most of us don't live you know stormy monumental lives, but we all have to react to the, the small dramas around us and and um you know uh, it's it's just that history of what you see and and what you think about what you see um that really makes us who we are. So I think that was I start with that 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 your life doesn't have to be incredibly exciting to be of great, it's obviously it's of great interest to you and it would be of great interest to anybody who could get close to you. Um, and I think one of the things that I'm trying to do in this book is um, talk about the unfulfilled longings in, in these characters. So my main character, Sarah, um, had all sorts of intellectual ideas about herself. She's a feminist in college. She went to graduate school. She almost got a PhD. She didn't. um, And she's suffering from some feeling that she thought she was special, but she's discovered that she's just ordinary. And I think that's a very familiar feeling for a lot of people. And I think parenthood often means the end of certain kinds of dreams that you might have for yourself, or, or, or that's what the culture suggests. And so she's struggling against some feeling that her life is less than she thought it should be. And so I think that feeling of unfulfilled longing really charges um, her life. And, and when she makes a kind of bold decision to change her life in the book, um, it's not just a kind of uh, stupid mistake. I mean, it's a real attempt to kind of change the course of her life and find some
0: something beautiful, even I- in a kind of tawdry circumstances. So you're creating tension by moving the characters contrasting the ter- character's reality to their dreams of themselves and that tension exists as they want to move from one to the other and realize maybe they can maybe they can't and make decisions based on those desires
1: yeah and and you know i ha- i have to say it's it's not um something that's unique to me i mean this is i think what novels do on the most basic level you know you think of something like don quixote which you know and, and which, by the way, is is not so dissimilar to Madame Bovary, which is a book I reference a whole lot in this book. They're both; those are characters who read a lot of romantic literature. You know, Don Quixote read the chivalric literature and and wants to see himself as a knight. Um, Madame Bovary has read lots of um, uh, kind of romance. You know, early romance stuff. I mean, she wants to see herself as a romantic heroine as well. And you know, their circumstances don't live up to their literary models, but they forge ahead nonetheless, you know, and it's, it is about that interplay between the inner world and and the outer world.
0: Tell us a little bit about this book and Madame Bovary. Um, Well, you know, this
1: book on its most basic level is a drama of suburban adultery. Um, Sarah is a stay-at-home mom, and... One day at the playground she meets a man named Todd, who's a stay at home dad, who's a very good looking uh man, a former jock, who uh is there with his son. The other mothers call him the prom king. Um and Sarah and Todd with surprising speed, you know, become enmeshed in a passionate affair. And so in that sense, you know, Madame Bovary is the early prototype for any kind of suburban adultery book. Um there's that, but there's also a very explicit use of Madame Bovary in this book where Sarah is invited to a book group with a lot of older women who live in her neighborhood who are former school teachers. Um, and when she gets there, she discovers her nemesis from the playground is there, her small-minded nemesis, um, and they engage in a debate about Madame Bovary that really is a kind of debate about what Sarah's doing in this affair with Todd. So it's a um, – Madame Bovary is both a model for little children – um, and a kind of, uh, you know, live text w- within little children.
0: In a way, this book is a, quite a bit about the fruits of feminism, both for the women and for the men.
1: That's an interesting way to put it. And and see, this is another way in which uh, when you say, you know, this is about America the petty, um, one of the things that feminism taught us is that it's in the pettiest or smallest um facts of our lives that that we find you know politics always um and you know I, I was very explicitly thinking about this book um in terms of the generation of women that i went to college with um because i remember very vividly you know 20 years ago staying up late and you know vowing to one another you know men and women both that we were going to do it differently it wasn't going to be that old world of the man goes out and works and the woman stays home and raises the kids. you know women were getting educations, they had dreams they were going to do it. Everyone was gonna find some new way to do it, to share more equitably um to break old patterns and you know twenty years later, um I think very few people have found ways to break the old patterns or or i mean I think some people have, and there are a lot of women who are out working, but a lot of women that I knew who made those vows actually have found themselves in in, um, much more traditional domestic arrangements. And sometimes voluntarily, sometimes they were women who had careers. They said, no, no, I I would really prefer to be home with my kids. Sometimes it was economically determined. Um, You know, the husband had the better job. Somebody needed to be home. Daycare was too expensive. Um, But Sarah, in particular, really saw herself very explicitly as a feminist. And um, the whole first chapter really is about the odd path that she traveled um a path of you know career career failure um you know difficulties with jobs that kind of left her adrift and when she was adrift she kind of wandered into this kind of standard domestic arrangement and it's uh it's a form of uh quiet torture for her that she is in some way betrayed these principles that animated her
0: early life and it's also highly ironic that the change that some of these people did make is that now, as in Todd's case, the man stays at home, and it's not that big of a change. Mm -hmm.
1: Well, Todd is a kind of a mythical creature, though I I know that you're a a stay-at-home dad, and and I've put in my time as a stay-at-home dad. Um, I think the thing about Todd, his big secret is he likes being a stay-at-home dad. His wife thinks that he's studying for the bar exam, and he's going to ultimately take on a traditional male role of of breadwinner, Um, and that that it's just a matter of time. But because we have access to Todd's inner thoughts, we know pretty early that um, he's pretty much given up on that dream but is frightened to tell his wife. Um, So you have Sarah, a stay-at-home mom who wishes she had a career in a public life um, and is kind of ill-suited to be a, a primary caretaker to a child. And then you have Todd over on the other side, whose wife thinks that he's about to have a high-powered professional career, um, but who really is well-suited to being a primary caregiver and wants nothing more than to stay home with his kid. So they're a funny,
0: funny pair in this sense. Well, you have a couple of other interesting stay-at-home men as well. There's Larry, uh, an ex-cop who's on permanent disability, and then there's Ronnie McGorvey. Tell us about those characters.
1: Right. Well this is, um, the main subplot in Little Children and the thing that I think keeps it from being, um, you know, simply an adultery farce about a stay-at-home mom and a stay-at-home dad who have a passionate affair despite, you know, the, the trivialities of their, um, you know, lives at the playground. Ronnie McGorvey is, of course, the manifestation of the worst fears of the parents at the playground. He's a a uh, paroled sex offender who has moved into this neighborhood to live with his mom. And they've been notified of his presence and they're pretty worried about it. Um, but um, Larry Moon is a, a ex-cop. He's in his early 30s, but he's retired on disability due to the um, emotional stress he has experienced after um, mistakenly shooting a black kid in a mall. It was one of those cases where the kid had a toy gun. Larry shot him. And, uh, you know, he he was investigated and he was exonerated of any criminal uh, action or intent, but his life was ruined, basically. And he's home and he's at loose ends and then this sex offender comes and Larry becomes obsessed with getting rid of him, getting him, you know, harassing him so badly that he'll leave and he kind of sees this as a heroic quest, and he um, recruits Todd to, to join him in it. And so what you have in this story is a kind of humorous um, foreground. where I mean, somewhat humorous, because Todd and Sarah are not simply funny characters, but it is a kind of adultery farce set in, you know, among suburban parents. And in the background, this kind of much darker, more menacing story about a sex offender who may or may not, have been involved in a, in a horrible crime. He was never convicted of it, but was was suspected of it. And this uh, man who was involved in a tragic, um, violent incident, who now has his sights set on this sex offender. And it was the real struggle in writing the book was uh, to figure out what kind of tone would accommodate both these stories and what kind of tension you could create and sustain um, between... The, the comedy of the one story and and the really unruly uh dark and and violent suggestions in the other story
0: together in some ways it almost reads like a horror story it's there's a lot of tension suspense you know something bad is going to
1: happen yeah <laughs> well, Ronnie has a way of popping up you know. He he haunts the book, really, and, and in that sense, he is a kind of um, a horror movie figure. Um, sometimes, you know, I, I use that ironically. I mean, certain times he pops up in all innocence. On a very hot day, he goes to the town pool, and he jumps in, and Sarah and Todd are, are watching uh, from nearby. And he basically clears the pool like, like the shark in Jaws. All the parents start calling their kids out. They won't let their kids share the water with... You know this suburban monster man, um, but also he rides his bike around town, and and you know every glimpse of him I- evokes great fear. I mean, sometimes he doesn't even have to be around. At one point, Sarah loses her daughter in a store, and she immediately thinks of this man that she's seen on the posters. Um, and so I think uh, readers who are familiar with, um, who've read a lot of novels, will know. I mean, you have basically a two-track story, and you have to feel at some point that these stories are going to converge for the book um, to make a kind of unified whole. And, you know, I was aware that that there was going to have to be a convergence, and I think the challenge for the writer is to make that convergence both inevitable and surprising.
0: As you started the book, did you know how they would come together?
1: I didn't. um, You know, all I knew, I'd like to have a kind of, natural ending point when I write a book. Um, So like uh, my book, Election, you know, was really about the outcome of the election and the aftermath. I wrote a book called The Wishbones, which begins on the day a man gets engaged and ends on the day he gets married. But in the interim, he has started a relationship with another woman. So the question throughout the book is, is he going to go through with this marriage given what's going on in his life? And I, as a writer, don't want to know until the very last minute whether the answer is yes or no. And that's a way I think you, you keep the suspense alive for yourself. In Little Children, I knew very early on that the story was going to end with a woman waiting at a playground at night um, for her lover to come. And the question was, is the lover going to come or isn't he going to come? Um, and I, again, I tried to keep that answer open for as long as possible. How Ronnie was going to fit into it, I didn't know. Um, and And that's really um that was the, the struggle of the book in some sense, and I remember when i i saw I saw how it was gonna happen um and that was the day the the book really became whole for
0: me um it, Let's talk a little bit about the not in my backyard mentality, which features greatly in this book um
1: yeah and and it's uh Sarah's husband Richard actually, um proudly says, you know, about Ronnie. He wants he wants they're talking about Larry's increasingly violent efforts to get Ronnie out of town. Um, and Richard, who thinks of himself as a liberal guy in many ways, um just says, you know, well, I think one of the other characters says, Well, where's he gonna go? I mean, if he goes somewhere else, the same thing's just gonna happen and Richard just says, I don't care. as long as it's not in my backyard and he understands that it's a a cliche and and not a very flattering thing to say self-flattering thing to say but i think as a parent he really does feel like you know let him harass somebody else's kid let him do his dirty deeds somewhere else um and it is hard to know you know to what extent i mean nobody wants to live next door to somebody who might might harm
0: their kids um and uh, that mentality really expresses a a primal struggle of us versus the other, the aliens, the outsiders, which in some ways is why we all move to the suburbs, isn't it?
1: I guess. I mean, one of the things I wanted to do with this uh, portrayal of Ronnie was to see him as part of this community. Um, one of the things that, that the book is about... Um, is about unruly desires. You know, people who have desires not sanctioned by the community. Um, so, of course, Todd and Sarah, as adulterous lovers, um, are, you, you know, prey to to illicit desires. Um, Sarah's husband, Richard, is deeply involved in internet porn, um, and there are lots and lots of anecdotes about kind of deviant sexual behavior that gets. Um, integrated back into daily life. Um in fact, you know, to see these pictures coming from the Iraqi prisons right now um you know, just reminds me of the extent to which uh, kind of certain sexual deviancy is kind of very widespread in this in this culture. But you know and so in that sense Ronnie is not all that different from some of the other characters in the book. But He's also the one person beyond the pale. I mean, I think the culture that my characters live in can accommodate a whole lot of um, unruly sexual behavior. But, of course, Ronnie is the one outside. And so he really is treated very literally as the other. Um, And, you know, it's not like I'm suggesting in the book that Ronnie is um, an innocent victim, because he's not. But it it is a, a, a... I am trying to explore the dynamics of you know why we do that, why there's this scapegoating um, and you know some of the ironies involved with that, and trying just trying to just trying to explore as a writer the the loneliness and isolation of, of a character marked permanently um, as being outside of the community but yet living within it.
0: You actually do an excellent job, I thought of creating sympathy for this man. Uh, uh, readers, I think, almost hope that he he's not really, really, really bad. <laughs> and, and you do a good job of creating sympathy for a, a gallery of characters who are not, by and large, what you describe as sympathetic.
1: Yeah, well, it, partly that's because there's some confusion that I think it comes from Hollywood about what sympathetic is, you know. Um, when Hollywood says, "I want a sympathetic main character," what they mean is good looking person who never does anything wrong, you know someone without flaws you know um or is it within literature, I think what sympathetic means is um, to some degree you get inside them, you understand the story that they tell themselves um, and once that happens, you know uh you know the the tragedy is that everyone has their reasons and, you know once you understand their reasons, they seem um a little more human to you um in terms of ronnie uh i think it's the book's a little deceiving you know i think if you just look at what the things he says and does um there's nothing very sympathetic about him at all but for most of the book you see him through the eyes of his mother his elderly mother who is the only person in the world who will take him in um and she looks at him with uh this kind of just very melancholy desperate hope that he can change and become a decent and you know normal quote unquote normal person um and i think because you see him through his mother's eyes um you start to want him to be better as well um and it's a i did it mainly as a kind of uh Literary shortcut, I, I couldn't get in his head, and I didn't want to get in his head. I thought, oh, I don't want to spend the next year trying to imagine the world from the mind of, of a, a pedophile. Um, and and I, used, I thought, I, I will portray him through the eyes of his mother, who is, I think, actually one of the most sympathetic characters in the book, because she loves her son unconditionally and does her best in a really hopeless task that exhausts her, you know, to try and somehow reform him and and make him happy. I mean, it, the first time you see him, she's writing a personal ad for Ronnie because she wants him to get a girlfriend. And there's just something so uh, melancholy about the task of writing a personal ad on behalf of a convicted child molester. Um, and again, there's a kind of dark comedy to that, but I was m- mainly interested in the pathos of it. Um, and, and in fact, Ronnie does... Uh the second time you see him, the second time there's a chapter explicitly about him, he does go on a date, which is, of course, um, a real disaster. And, and one of the moments when you realize that um,
0: he may well be um, a certain kind of monster. Could you talk about considering the audience? You're writing a book about suburbanites in the suburbs. A lot of people from the suburbs are going to be reading this. Do you consider the audience as you write? Do you think, boy, everybody who reads this is going to be fig- trying to figure out who they are like? Um I
1: I don't know. I I don't know that I worry about about all that. I mean, um just recently in Boston, um a Boston Globe columnist wrote about um an upscale suburban women's book group that refused to read this and the he didn't really do a whole lot of reporting but there was some implication that people felt threatened by the book or, or worried about it but what I've noticed anecdotally of course is that a lot of people were interest. a lot of people had their interest piqued by this article and felt like they wanted to make a statement of well I'm not the kind of prim suburbanite who can't stare my life in the face you know and so it actually created a lot of interest I think um, you know, I've had I've had the response run the gamut of I know lots of women like Marianne, who's the sort of uh, maternal villain at the playground. She's Sarah's nemesis, and she's an uptight kind of uh, super mom. And I hear a lot of people say, "Oh, I know lots of Marianne's. but I've also heard people say, um, with a certain melancholy, "Oh, I'm a lot like Sarah," or you know, "I I'm, this reminds me a lot of my own life." And I think ultimately, you're hoping that people feel a a personal connection, that it doesn't um, simply allow them to express their superiority to characters who, um, you know, make a lot of mistakes, which my characters do, um, but that the book becomes a vehicle for people to recognize their own lives and, and to think about it and to become aware of some of the pressures and tensions and joys, hopefully, even hidden in there somewhere.
0: This book also, I thought, does a great job of looking at male issues. Men at home, men at work, men in sports. You've written about this before. Could you talk about this book as a outgrowth of maybe of your other work? Um where in the path does this fit?
1: Well, it's very interesting, you know, I because I, I, I on the one hand I think this book is fundamentally different from my other books because it is very much about the world of, of women and, and this you know this playground where they're mostly women and women as groups you know there's a book group and there's a playground mother's group um, but you're right Todd is a jock um, and uh, he it's I think feeling a little bit alienated from his body and from just you know that traditional way of being a man in the world and and being with other men um, he had been in a frat he'd been on teams and one of the things that happens right around happens in the book right around the same time that he starts this affair with Sarah is that Larry recruits him to play on a football team that um, that is mainly composed of, of of cops. And Todd suddenly is is regaining, you know, his his place in the world of men. And and so again, it's very appealing to him. One of the reasons that I think he puts up he aids and abets Larry in in a lot of uh, somewhat nasty errands, is that Larry has restored to him some sense of his place as a man among men. Um, That even though Todd likes has a maternal side and really likes being home with his son, um, the book is about the energy that he feels from kind of having his traditional male prerogatives restored. He's suddenly a sexual creature again, and he's also suddenly um, a man who uh, is... Sort of successful in the world of competition and violence, and he's recovering his athletic identity as well and so um, to some degree, I think um, the book is exploring just how stubbornly you know these these models of um, masculinity um, persist even in the lives of men who um, have made a choice to move beyond them.
0: there's a lot of perversion in this book.
1: <laughs> yes, the the, uh, the original working title was, Hey, Pervert.
0: <laughs> um, could you talk a little bit about uh, our friend Richard and his internet addiction and why you played that in? And the way you played it out was, I thought, quite surprising. Talk about that also in terms of both in, as a male, uh, an almost strictly male activity, and also in terms of, again, the other
1: yeah, well, Richard is, is Sarah's husband. Um, he's an older man. He's been divorced, and, and the little bit of history we know about him is that during his, the early period of his divorce, before he met Sarah, he, was, uh, he had went through a period that he considered to be addiction to pornography. He was living alone and spent a lot of time watching you know videotapes of, of porn. And at some point, he was filled with so much self-loathing he gathered up all of his pornography and put it in a bag and threw it in a dumpster. And um, he thinks of this as a act of like self-righteous purification. And after this, he makes a vow to be a better man. And and for a short time, it works. And in this period, he meets Sarah. They, uh, they get pregnant. He thinks, this time, I'm going to be a good father because he felt like he had neglected his family previously. Um, but this addiction comes back in the form of um, a website that he can't keep he can't stay away from run by a woman named slutty K who is a kind of amateur exhibitionist but who's created a kind of cult of personality around herself and sells um you know uh, used panties over the internet for example and um Richard boy he you know he surrenders to this obsession and goes to meet the object of his um obsession and um Again, you know, the, the book is a lot about, one of the reasons I called it little children is that, that that's a phrase that I try to examine from a lot of different angles. I mean, these pe- these are people that are raising little children. These are people, uh, you know, in Ronnie's case, it's someone who's sexually attracted to little children. Um, but also these are adults who haven't fully um, accepted the idea that they can discipline their desires. And, you know, Richard is um, somebody who just, just basically surrenders to this uh this fascination with this woman who's a, who's a stranger and and uh you know he he accepts this fantasy as a kind of new reality in his life and and um his journey and Sarah's journey are, are kind of uh parallel but Richard somehow seems seems to be making this fantasy into a, into a A real phase of his life. Um, As far as, you know, porn being a a male thing, um, that's another, you know, Slutty K has a whole club of men who are devoted to her, and and Richard finds a a kind of uh, community around that as well.
0: So, So Richard uses porn to achieve a sense of camaraderie with the world rather than divorce himself from it.
1: Uh, yeah and and that that was his uh a kind of journey right he he was um feeling very alienated by his reliance on this internet porn and feeling like there's something so obviously so bloodless and disembodied about it um, but he goes on this journey that that in gradual steps uh, leads him to um you know a, a strange kind of communion with other people but a real, uh, you know, real insofar as it exists.
0: I also found it interesting the way you worked Larry's point of view. So that in some sense, what's normal has become perverse. Hmm. H- how do you mean? Well, Larry, having uh, wedded and married a, a beautiful woman upon um uh, losing his job as a result of shooting this young man and staying at home, all of a sudden finds himself in a position where he's no longer able to function sexually, but he wants to. There's a kind of a tension so that he almost views normal behavior, in a sense, as perverse.
1: Yeah, well, Larry uh, is, is full of a kind of guilt that he can't acknowledge. Um, but one way it manifests itself in his life is that I think he's unable to um, allow himself pleasure and and his wife finally gets fed up with him and begins divorce proceedings. And, and a, a lot of these thoughts that you're talking about take place in a chapter called Church on Sunday. Um, Larry's divorce lawyer has um, suggested that he start going back to church because his wife is religious. He feels it will help with the custody arrangements if he's able to present himself to the judge as as a kind of you know pillar of the community, and he goes to church and basically what he does is stare at his wife and and kind of um, think about what went wrong in his marriage and think about his attitude toward her sexually and and I think it's um, it's true in a sense that Ronnie um, has given the presence of this child molester who who shows up in church that day. Um, there's a lot of inner rage that Larry's feeling and then he sees Ronnie and he's allowed to turn that rage. Outward and and uh, you know there's some, you're right there's something very suggestive about the juxtaposition of the story about Larry's um, failed marriage and and his lack of interest in sexuality and his um, obsession with Ronnie, which in some sense fills that space. And his wife is very suspicious of his obsession with Ronnie because I think she understands it as a kind of substitution for self-examination or for some attempt to come to terms with his own experiences. It's instead of looking in. Um, and seeing, you know, why he um, has begun to kind of hate himself, you know, Larry turns all that hate outward toward Ronnie. And those moments when they're together are very charged because, you know, um, they need each other a little more than, than they should. And they know each other a little too well in
0: some way. And, of course, adultery itself is a form of perversion.
1: Uh, well, <laughs> you know, in the context of this book, it's like the only
0: normal sex you get. I <laughs> uh, talk about playing to type and against type and stereotype with the prom king and the playground mothers. Um,
1: that's actually a really good question, um, and and I'll I'll try and answer it just by by saying that it's something that I've been as a comic novelist that I deal with all the time. Um, and if people have seen the movie election, which is a terrific movie, I really think it is wonderful, but it, it fundamentally differs from my book in the sense that, um, I play against type, you know, the character played by Chris Klein in the movie election is a dumb jock and he's a very funny dumb jock, but we know that type in the book. What I actually have is a smart jock. Um, a guy who's a football player who has suddenly begun to be interested in the world, interested in politics, and he's using this election to kind of create a story for himself where he's not limited to the kind of life path that he thought he was before. Um, and I've, I've learned, I think, as a kind of comic thing that I can have my cake and eat it to, if I establish the characters first as a type. So you get all the laughs that come with pointing out, you know, what makes a type of type? So Todd is romanticized by these women, and there's something funny about the way they treat him. Um, he's compared to an uh, underwear model. He's compared to a soap opera star. He's just a good-looking man in the world. But as soon as we meet him, we know that there's this whole other story. And in some ways, um, what he looks like is part of his problem. Um, and there's something that you gain... In a, in a literary way of letting these characters grow beyond their types, so almost everybody is kind of evoked first as a type, and then allowed to kind of grow beyond the type. And and partly this is um, comes out of real life. I, I tend to be, I think, um, somewhat judgmental person. I tend to um, think that I know people right away and go, oh, I know who that guy is, you know. And there's always that moment, and and I think it always comes almost with a Sense of shame. That moment when somebody says something to you that surprises you, it makes them realize you didn't really know them at all, um, and they they get suddenly bigger and more mysterious to you. They become real. I mean, that to me is a powerful moment in any kind of you know human relationship. That moment that somebody surprises you, and I hope that all these characters, you know, go go through a kind of uh, um, arc like that. The, the most I think surprising one for readers of the book will be Marianne, who we get to hate throughout the book she's just the character we love to hate she's always saying uh the most narrow-minded uh you know hostile things to to our main character Sarah who we like and so it's just ooh that Marianne you know what a um what a horrible person and and very very late in the book you get some access to Marianne's thoughts at a very vulnerable moment um and hopefully you sort of leave feeling like even even her even the character who seemed um most stereotypical ha- has a story has some depth is capable of being wounded um is full of longing for something else that she'll never get um so it it has become a kind of um method for me it's, it's why i sometimes feel um like it's not quite right for critics to suggest that i'm writing satire but I understand exactly where it comes from Mm -hmm. because I do think initially it feels a little bit like that. Like you're seeing these characters and you think you know them and you think their faults are heightened in instructive ways and I think what happens instead of staying static as a character would in in satire um, in embodying this type all the way through, um, they deepen and change and they kind of slip out of the box that they seem to have been put in early
0: on. Let's talk about humor writing. This book is very funny, and I I don't think I'd describe it as satire. As you say, the characters are are too realistic. They're too real. You build a lot of humor into your prose. Is this the product of the first generation, or is this the product of revision? Is this a product of planning, or is this a product of you?
1: Yeah, no, I I think... um you know i think humor is one of those those things that uh, if you're if you're a comic writer basically you can write about anything and it will come out comic because it's a, it's mainly being attuned to absurdity um it's mainly a kind of whole attitude toward the world i mean you know there's the the classic definition of comedy which is you know kind of happy ending um you know in shakespeare there's there's marriage the social world is kind of You know, reconstituted the society is confirmed. Um, That's not what I'm talking about. When I'm talking about comic fiction, I'm much more talking about a moment-to-moment sense of the absurd. Um, And I want my my long-term goal as a writer, I think, is to figure out ways to write comic fiction about all sorts of serious subject matter. That you know, and you know, this book in some ways is explicitly about that. I mean, you know, there are probably not many books that could be called comic novels that involve you know pretty serious treatment of a character who's a child molester or um a a cop who's killed a kid um you know i think and there's a lot of darkness i mean, obviously i'm talking about dark comedy here but um a lot of the humor comes from the gap between what people are thinking and what they say and do um the the lies that they tell one another um the strange ways that they undermine themselves when they think they're doing one thing. So this is very serious stuff. Um, it, it, but it comes out funny because I think, you know, ultimately we behave in pretty absurd ways. It doesn't, it doesn't necessarily diminish the importance of our lives or, or the, um, emotional impact of a particular moment. Um, but I am one of those people who, um, you know, when, and maybe it's, you know, maybe it's politically not, you know, the most useful thing. I mean, if, if I'm watching TV and the president lies, I, t- I tend to laugh like, like <laughs> you know, it's not like, I think it's great that the president, you know, and it gets me angry on some level, but there's also just that humor of, you know, here's what's being said and here's reality. And, and uh, the laugh is almost what marks the gap between uh, reality and language or something like that.
0: Let's talk a little bit about little children. There are a lot of little children in this book, and some of them are all grown up. That's right. And, and you know, normally I, I would
1: not be uh, in favor of... I think little children is a slightly bland title, and, and usually I think, well, it's very hard to get people to pay attention to your books, and you might want a kind of catchier or funnier title but I, I could never find another title for for this book um because it seems so perfect on so many levels um the first time the phrase is used is in the first chapter and sarah says um she says what was adult life but um but many moments of weakness piled one on top of the other i'm, I'm paraphrasing here she said most people just um lined up like obedient little children and did whatever society expected them to do at any given point. So here, you know, Sarah says, um, adults are children because they don't make their own choices because somehow society tells them what to do and they do it. Um, I think a reader might say these adults are children because they, um, refuse to accept adult responsibility. They want what they want and they kick and scream until they get it. Um, they're not emotionally mature. Um, so there's some of that. Um, Later Ronnie's mother, when she wants to go to church, takes the Christian view of that. She says Ronnie says, you know, I don't think anybody wants to see a guy like me in church and she says, We're all his children. Um and there's that, that larger claim of, you know, we're all God's children. So I think there there are a number of ways in which um you know, being a child being a child and grownups being little children, um is a very evocative phrase and it and it kind of shifts its meaning throughout the book and, and it's kind of a prismatic concept rather than a um, you know a, a little joke. I
0: have to ask about the dust jacket.
1: <laughs> yes, well uh, you know the original book jacket uh, and people may have noticed this had uh, uh, two goldfish crackers facing each other on a field of astroturf. I mean, it's very kind of iconic but eerie jacket. I was really very pleased with it, um, but the uh, Pepperidge Farm Corporation was not. <laughs> um, they apparently have the trademark on goldfish crackers, even even though we, uh, I think the cover had somewhat modified them and it wasn't like a direct photograph of a Pepperidge Farm goldfish cracker. They felt that their trademark had been violated, and they asked St. Martin's Press to cease and desist, um, which I guess, you know, the publisher felt like they had no choice because if there was any kind of litigation, the books would have to be taken off the shelves for the duration, or the cover would have to be covered with a sticker. Wh- whatever, it was going to be a, a a problem. So, <laughs> what they negotiated with uh, Pepperidge Farm was that that all the goldfish copies got shipped, but any subsequent printings would have to have a different cover. And so, what we have now are are two chocolate chip cookies facing each other on a field of <laughs> astroturf.
0: You've had a lot of success in the movies. Um, Election was an absolutely enjoyable movie. Could you talk about that experience? About many writers have not had such a felicitous experience to to have it actually done and done well.
1: Yeah, no, it was it was it you know it it's especially um you know, surprising because that that was a book I couldn't get published. Um, Election was a, a manuscript in, in a drawer. And what happened was I went to a writer's conference and read from my novel, The Wishbones, which was in an early state. And there's a screenwriter in the audience um, who thought that might be an interesting movie. And she told some movie producer friends of hers that they should get in touch with me. And when they called, I said, you know, I'm not done with the book she was thinking about, but I have this other book in a drawer that I think you might, that they might have some movie um, potential. And I sent to them and they liked it. And mtv films optioned it at a time when they thought that they when they they thought they wanted to do edgy films they've since moved to a much um, more mainstream pg-13 sort of thing but um they took it on and then they got alexander Payne, who i think is one of the great american filmmakers to uh get involved uh, in writing the script with his co-writer jim taylor and then um they wrote such a great script that all these actors and it just unfolded like a dream um, and I was a complete novice and I thought, Oh, well, this is how the movie world works. And in the, you know, past five years, I've been trying to, you know, recreate that experience and, and have had, you know, much rockier time of it. Um, and you know, I mean, you look at a lot of writers, you know, really prominent writers. Uh, some of them never get a good movie made of their book. Um, some of them get, you know, but to ask for more than one is, is to ask a lot in, in, in the world. So I, I may have gotten my allotment. I hope I, I'm actually working on little children right now with, um, Todd Field who is the director who did in the bedroom and we're you know we're hoping to make a good and interesting movie about it but y- you know you there're just no guarantees i mean there's so many um institutional pressures and economic pressures and and just hollywood and political stuff that that comes to bear that that i mean everybody starts with good intentions i think it's just the rare case like election where you get those good intentions to bear fruit could you talk about what you're working on now? Are you working on a new novel? Um, you know, I, I, I'm i just working on the script with, with Todd for Little Children, um, and I had been uh, doing some journalism and book reviews. I just try to take, like, uh, a little bit of time between novels now. I've been writing novels for um, about 10 years, and, and as I get older, I, I really love it, but I find that I need to recover. It's just such a... Um, You know, it's just such a burden to take on, and I find that I I appreciate the (laughs) the the period without it. Once I'm in it, I really love it. There's there's nothing better than being in it, but actually getting in it um, takes a real effort of will and, and a kind of you know going down in the down in the mines kind of kind of feeling. And I'm happy to be you know up above in the fresh air for the moment.
0: When you're writing novels, do you have you written short stories as well?
1: You know, I started as a story writer and my first book was a collection of stories. Um but since then I've only written the the very uh, you know, uh, rare story, you know, maybe. But but yeah, right after I finished uh Little Children, I I wrote two short stories, um Last Fall. That was one of the things I did. Um and that was fun. It was fun to get back to it. Um But for whatever reason I I have a difficult time getting them published. Um which may also be um part of what keeps me from writing more and more of them um just just
0: uh you know i don't know why that is but it's frustrating for me and you've done journalism and book reviews as well
1: yeah i try and um you know stretch a little bit um one, one of the nice perks that comes with having some success as a writer is that um you know magazines will sometimes come to you and say would you do a story on this or that and if you don't have a whole lot going on it, it it's nice to have that kind of work for hire, and, and, uh, you know, the freedom to
0: investigate something you might not investigate otherwise. We have been talking with Tom Perata. His latest novel is Little Children. Thanks for joining us, Tom. Oh, thanks so much, Rick. I had a good time. Thanks. (laughs) ¶¶